Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello everyone and welcome to LawPod. My name is Ariana McBurney. I am currently in the third year of my undergraduate degree studying LLB Law with Spanish Law. Today I'm joined by Megan. Hi, my name is Megan Burns and I am in my final year of my undergraduate degree studying LLB Law. We are delighted to have with us Dr. Dahi McShehi, a Professor of Law and Innovation here at Queen's University Belfast. He will be talking to us on the effect COVID-19 trace and track applications are having on our privacy rights, a very current issue. By way of introduction, Dahi, thank you for being with us today. Please tell us a bit about yourself and your work. Thank you very much for having me. As you said, I hold the role of Professor of Law and Innovation uh, here at Queen's University Belfast. My research relates to a range of law and technology areas, including the data and privacy issues we'll talk about today, but also aspects of media regulation, intellectual property and so forth. I teach on our new master's degree in law and technology and previously have uh, taught subjects including media and information law and intellectual property law. Perfect. Thank you, Dahi. As you're aware, the National Health Service has rolled out a contact tracing app to help stop the spread of coronavirus. Concerns have been raised regarding privacy principles of security, data minimization, transparency and accountability. And these apply both to private and government use of tracing apps. What are your thoughts on the app and do you have any similar concerns? Well, in your question, you've identified the, the key legal requirements for, for the public or private sector when it comes to the processing of personal data under the General Data Protection Regulation, the famous or infamous GDPR. And so it's been quite important as tracing, contact tracing apps have been developed that their, their lawfulness be understood and, and scrutinised I have installed the Stop COVID NI app on on my smartphone. I haven't yet received a notification through it, although I'm currently working from home and minimizing my contacts in accordance with the public health requirements and advice. And what what the contact tracing app seeks to to do is uh, find a way of letting individuals know that they've been in contact with someone who subsequently has, has tested positive for COVID-19, but to do so in a way that doesn't involve monitoring of location or keeping a national centralised database of everybody's phone and where they've been and, and, and who they've met. So that was a real challenge for the, for the development of this app. The, the system that's been used in uh, Northern Ireland is also being used in the Republic of Ireland and a number of, of other jurisdictions this seeks to do as much as possible on the phone of the individual user rather than in a, a central database or a, a central server and that's how the developers of the app have tried to to address those principles you rightly outlined of minimization 
transparency, etc. So the app that's used in uh, Northern Ireland records, say, on my phone, every time my phone is close to the phone of another app user. And all of that data stays on my phone. However, if it turns out that somebody enters a positive test result into their app, then the anonymized details of that device will be sent out to everybody who has the app. And then the checking takes place on everyone's individual phone, and that's what triggers the alert. So this is sometimes called a decentralized approach. And its merits are intended to be that if, for instance, I receive a notification on my phone, I don't know why I've got that. I don't know whether it was in a particular location or who it was, nor does the public health agency or its equivalent in other jurisdictions know that. Um, And of course, that means that some things won't be captured and there'll be some mysteries out there. But the trade-off was that a a fully centralized system was very likely to have attracted significant public concern and would have also had some, uh, would would have been more difficult to reconcile with the legal requirements under the general data um, uh, protection regulation. So that's the, that's the challenge. Just because you can do something with technology or with the collection of data, that doesn't make it lawful. And it certainly doesn't make it publicly acceptable. Perfect. Thank you. And swiftly moving on to our next question. So as you're aware, ORG's executive director, Jim Killick, stated, and this is a direct quote, A crucial element in the fight against the pandemic is mutual trust between the public and the government, which is undermined by their operating the programme without basic privacy safeguards. On the topic of mutual trust, do you think the public distrust the government with their data information, perhaps because we don't know the full extent of what happens with our data? And where do you think this stems from? Well, I think a certain level of distrust is healthy. It's necessary to scrutinize new and potentially innovative projects. It is also important from a from a legal perspective, but also in terms of trust in an overall program, that there is a transparency around the um, the use of data, but also the goals of of a project. One of the things that struck me about the the more effective contract tracing apps is that they they tried to do one thing well rather than try to do everything and in terms of for instance data minimization that's where risk starts to to creep in if for instance an app is designed to deal with contact tracing but also with check-in to venues and with provision of health advice and with doing sort of population level statistical analysis the the risks are greater and the the room for a lack of mutual trust is is very significant. One of the things that's uh, important in uh, what Jim Killock and the Open Rights Group did in their advocacy over the summer was the need to do the privacy assessment first. And this has become clearer, I think, in the early stages, maybe certainly in the app that we've been developed in England and Wales, there was an emphasis on sort of doing something new and putting in place an ethics framework. But one of the criticisms of that early project was that the the impact assessment hadn't been published. Now, I, I very much welcome that we now do carry out data protection 
impact assessments, which are legally required for, for certain projects that seek to use personal data. And even though the, the app that's used in, um, in Northern Ireland and indeed belatedly in England and Wales may not be collecting personal data because of the way in which it is designed, the right decision was taken to carry out that impact assessment in order to be as clear as possible. Similarly, when the contact tracing app for Northern Ireland was extended so that it could be used by by teenagers, there was a longer period of consultation and analysis and partial redesign, bringing in the children's commissioner, consulting the information commissioner. And it's that type of thing that, that makes mutual trust a reality. Uh, the other thing that strikes me as, as significant here is how the, a, a concept that's been de- de- developing over the last decade or so is privacy by design, or as now referred to in legislation, data protection by design. And that's the argument that one of the best ways you can protect privacy or you can offer the appropriate standards and procedures in respect of personal data is to think about that in the design process. And that might sound obvious, but it hasn't always been obvious. Your approaches to data protection and to privacy tended to look after the fact where there's been a problem, where there's been a breach, where there's been a complaint, and try to apply the relevant rights. A privacy by design approach, which is apparent, certainly in the later stages of contact tracing app development, is to design the system and how it interacts with the hardware in question, with any any centralized service where that is is present. That's, that's where you can actually start to think about these privacy issues and work out what you want to collect and how you can, you can seek not to collect personal data rather than, say, to, to collect it and then try retrospectively to, to protect or to anonymize it. And I, I think we've learned a lot from that process. If we look at some of the major data-related scandals or controversies in recent memory, which which again goes back to that important question you put to me of mutual trust. Things like the attempt to introduce a public services card in the Republic of Ireland, the attempt to reform health data in the Care Data Project um, in England and Wales. The the lack of trust in those projects has certainly slowed them down. Now, again, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe slowing things down in order to work out the best way is appropriate. That wasn't necessarily the option in 2020s, so there was a need to work and to iterate at speed. But we have seen concepts such as privacy by design. We've seen the presence of impact assessments, and we have seen the the care taken, for instance, to distinguish between the interests of adults and the interests of of under 18s. And th- those types of features do contribute to higher levels of of, of of mutual trust. But a certain amount of distrust or asking questions is is always important when it comes to the collection of data. Great, thank you. As of early August, the Test and Trace program had already experienced three data breaches involving personal data. Is this to be expected or should the public be worried? Well, it's important to emphasise here that the reported breaches here related to the administration of manual contract tracing rather than contract tracing apps themselves. And the breaches in question related to things that we have seen before, for instance, the circulation of employee or worker contact details through badly um, formatted emails or the inclusion of material that was intended to be anonymized and wasn't in in training materials. And it's, it's certainly a matter of regret that that has happened. 
uh, I guess what I would say is that that's why we have data protection law. That's why we now emphasize that a improvements in, that improvements in data protection require an organizational commitment. So that's why, for instance, large organizations now have data protection officers. Many organizations, including Queen's University, provide training and guidance to staff. And indeed, there are now obligations to report data breaches, which again, all of this put together is intended to address some of the root causes of of unauthorized or unlawful disclosure of personal data. We've also seen, for instance, other design and technological issues having an impact on the contact tracing program. So for instance, in England in England and Wales, there was an, an infamous uh, spreadsheet problem, which led to uh, a number of contacts not being followed up. And that was quite rightly publicized. Now, there's always a risk when you publicize when things go wrong in relation to data, whether that be a, a legal issue or otherwise, uh, because that might worry the public to, to, to put it in the terms of your question. But ultimately, if we go back to today's first question, uh, that idea that, that transparency is important, that it is better to, ex- to admit and to explain and to learn from a mistake rather than, rather than cover up. So, so ultimately, while it is always concerning that data breaches have uh, taken place, it is good that they've come to public attention and the other measures that are in place, including the good design of the contact tracing app itself, should at least mitigate some of, of that worry. But I mean, no less than the earlier question when we talked about public trust, um, it is right that the public be worried because that serves as an important check upon the power of the public and private sector when it comes to the collection and processing of personal data. So a little bit of worry is, it, it, it remains appropriate in in my view, but the, the breaches that appear to have happened over the summer didn't relate to the app itself and the record in respect of the app appears to be clear so far. We must, we must remain mindful and we must remain alert and it's important for academics and for researchers to ask difficult questions, even during a pandemic and even of public health authorities, because by asking those questions, overall protection of data and privacy is strengthened. Thank you. So as you know, nations around the world have introduced trace and track apps for COVID-19. Some share similar elements, while others don't. If you were to create a type of trace and track app, what would it look like? Um, so I think the app that we are using here in Northern Ireland meets many of the necessary criteria. It is heavily decentralised rather than centralised. It focuses on performing its core function. Um, it has been adapted so as to bring in under 18s in a way that's appropriate. There are still some things which, which in an ideal world one would want to attend to. The the system that is built upon in Northern Ireland and many other jurisdictions relies on some insights developed by Google and and Apple. This might be perhaps a a necessary evil because the wider context where the public sector depends upon technologies developed without necessarily the same oversight and scrutiny is a a matter of long-term concern. It's not to take away from the expertise that's in some of the major operators, but certainly above and beyond the specific issues of contact 
uh, tracing apps expecting uh, private companies to to do what is in the public interest and indeed what is necessary to comply with the law but also to promote public trust and to do what's in the in, in, in the public interest, that balance between public and private sector is very difficult to to get right. And the other thing that I think we've yet to resolve is whether whether an app is the the right answer. I suspect all of us have a uh, uh, who are involved in this in this podcast have a decent smartphone and are able to install the app if we we want to. But that's certainly not true of the population as a whole. And we would not want a situation where one was required to obtain particular technology or indeed mandated to install an app. There's been some interesting work around this. Singapore's contact tracing system, which is admittedly a bit more centralised than the system in Northern Ireland, has tried to create non-smartphone devices. So essentially a token or chip that can be worn or can be integrated into clothing in order to increase the range of contact tracing. The downside of that is the idea of a broad surveillance system or having to show that you're wearing a Bluetooth chip in order to enter a public venue. I mean, th- th- these are things that would require much more c- careful consideration that may not be appropriate under European U- Union legislation or indeed the level of public uh, trust that is present. That said, I do think that... Uh, when that if we are going to rely upon a contract tracing app as part of our strategy, we do need that to be accessible, including to those that don't have a, a smartphone that is capable of running the app. I also agree with the decision to make the use of the app encouraged but not mandatory. I mean, take up in Northern Ireland has been reasonably good. I think it's up towards half a million installations of the of the app at, at this stage. But doing doing so where it's strongly encouraged and doing so as part of a broader system that does still involve properly resourced and funded manual contact tracing and the efforts of organizations such as universities and schools. That's all important because one of the things that that disappointed me about some of the early advocacy for contract tracing apps was that, was that this would solve everything. You know, if everybody downloaded the app, then we'd be able to get back to normal life. That was never going to be the case. It was the, it was focusing upon a technological solution rather than thinking about the broad range of inter- interventions that are necessary in a public health context. And at, at this point, you know, I've, I have lost interest in things being world-leading or world-beating or doing everything. A good contact tracing app is well-designed, is limited to a specific purpose, and is part of a broader public health picture. And that's where I would go with this. Thank you. That's a very interesting point, Dahi. Um, moving forward, how do you think the creation of COVID-19 legislation will impact the future? This is a really important question. Um, and now is probably a very good time to be considering it. In the early stages of this present pandemic, we did see in various jurisdictions emergency powers being utilised. We saw very rapid amendments to legislation. And again, I can understand why that was appropriate in those circumstances, but it's also appropriate to look for better ways. Speakers and chairs of parliaments and assemblies around the world have emphasised that where possible, democratically elected bodies should have an opportunity to scrutinise legislation, whether that be in respect of privacy and uh, data concerns, or indeed more generally in terms of restrictions upon movement 
and and so forth. Now, this is not a this is not a new problem. The kind of dominance of executive powers has been an issue in many jurisdictions, and and so what we maybe maybe have learned in recent months is the the importance of deliberation, even if it's very quick deliberation, and opportunities for elected representatives to to have an input. Now, of course, that is happening in the context of urgency and indeed of scientific advice. But as we now move to certainly not a a new normal, but where there are opportunities to put new approaches and programs on a clear statutory basis, that should be done. Similarly, carrying out data protection assessments, human rights assessments, and so on, will contribute to some of those trust and confidence issues we have spoken about today. And in the maybe in the medium term, thinking of international cooperation is going to be important here. We have seen in relation to contact tracing apps a good deal of cooperation between sovereign states that has involved, for instance, the sharing of source code and the development of compatible apps. And most recently, it has involved transfer of contact tracing data between jurisdictions. So, for instance, the app in Northern Ireland will allow users to receive notifications in relation to positive tests in other jurisdictions using a compatible app. Again, that's been that's been worked out quite well with reference to the available time. But the transfer of personal data between jurisdictions has always been a, a difficult issue. There's been a, quite a number of developments recently in relation to the UK's exit from the European Union and how data flows might operate, particularly if the UK departs from some of the European Union data protection standards. Uh, there's a long-standing issue in relation to the European Union and the United States. So it may well be that further agreements are necessary in order to ensure that if it is necessary and proportionate to collect data or indeed personal data in relation to managing uh, COVID-19 or indeed any future pandemic, that that's put on a clear legal basis. And it does involve the expert input of, for instance, data protection and human rights bodies. We do need at this stage to bring those various levels of expertise, scientific, legal, and legitimate elected representatives all around the table. Thank you very much, Dachi. That was thought-provoking and extremely insightful. I greatly appreciate the time you've taken to be with us today. Yes, thank you very very much, much. Dachi. Thank you. Uh, That's all we have time for today. There are further show notes on the website for anyone who wants to have a further read. Make sure to give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram. My name is Megan Burns. And I'm Ariana McBurney. And this was LawPod's Law and Society team. It's been a pleasure. 